and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Batista Locatelli was born and raised in Las Vegas, where his grandparents owned the oldest Italian restaurant in town. He grew up in the kitchen and was very heavy as a child. He experienced food addiction, childhood trauma, molestation, domestic violence, and parental drug use. After numerous issues with drug use, multiple, t- multiple stints in jail, weight gain and loss, and homelessness, Batista maxed out at 314 pounds. That's when he tried a ketogenic diet and started walking on a local outdoor track. Slowly, the weight came back down. After being on a keto diet for nearly four years, he transitioned onto a carnivore diet. Now he has been clean and sober from drugs and alcohol for over 1,700 days. He is the operations manager for seven sober living homes in Southern Utah, with over 176 residents in early recovery. He is also currently getting his master's degree in social work to become a licensed clinical therapist and is interning at the exact same place that he went to rehab on three separate times. You can find him on Instagram at Joyful Carnivore. Batista, what a pleasure to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Wow, thank you so much. I just got chills. That was, wow. Should I read it again? I'll read it again. Yeah, I mean, you know, because you live it and you don't remember, you, you just don't soak it in. I don't know if you're, if you can relate to that. You live, you live so many experiences that, Lord, when somebody, thank you so much for the introduction that seriously, like almost brought me to tears. I'm like, wow, you know, I need to give myself a freaking pat on the back because geez, I, I've actually, I've done some things and that's cool. <clears throat> okay, you know? here we go. Let's do it again. Batista Locatelli. <laughs> oh man. I love it. So thank funny. I, I didn't put the pieces together until about five minutes ago. It's so stupid of me. I was yeah. thinking like oldest, <laughs> oldest, like Italian restaurant in Vegas. I know yeah. what that is. I think I've eaten there. And then I looked oh. at your name and I'm like, of course, Batista's. Oh, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so a lot of people your, do that. Is that your grandpa's name? Yes, it's my grandfather's name. He came over from Italy um, during World War II. Um, he was basically escaping the everything over there and just came over. And he moved to Santa Cruz, California, and then eventually moved to Las Vegas. And this was like 1958. Uh, Las Vegas, the Strip was actually Pebble Dirt Road. The Flamingo was there. It was, wasn't purchased by the Hilton yet. And so it was Bugsy Siegel days. And yeah, they walked uh, as a family. They were going around and they were passing out flyers and putting them on vehicles for $5 a day to live on. 1958. It was my grandpa, my grandma, and the four kids because they, my grandpa didn't have a job when he moved there. He was actually promised to be a backup singer at um, the old MGM Grand, which is now Bally's. And he was, my grandfather was a a classically trained opera singer. So um, yeah, he actually sang with Pavarotti and cut a record with him before Pavarotti was actually a household name. And he also sang for the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Wow. So um, he came to Las Vegas thinking that he was going to have this huge performance at uh, MGM Grand and their show called Jubilee. And it's got this big like finale with the sinking of the Titanic. And anyways, uh, topless dancers, you know, and lots of feathers. And it was just a big, big Vegas production. And so about a week after they moved here from California, um, all they had was this little like cockroach ridden apartment, the four kids, my grandparents. And so they were out making money every day to put food on the table. And they walked into this little dive bar and it was actually called the dive bar. 
And uh, um, it had four tables in there and a little tiny bar. And my grandfather walked out. My dad turned to my grandpa and says, my dad was probably eight or nine years old and said, dad, we should get this place and like turn it into our own restaurant. (laughs) Over the course of decades, my grandfather built out the entire strip mall, purchased the property, put power lines underneath the the building so that basically the property value would go up so you could build, you know, skyward. And then the Las Vegas monorail came over overhead of his building there. And uh, he just got in big with the McCarran airport was a pilot, um, did the Iron Man at age 50 years old and came in like third in his age group. Good God. He's just, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about, yeah, quite the introduction there. Like he's just an incredible, incredible human being. And uh Bought the restaurant for $16,000. The guy um, basically had a gambling problem, the owner of it. So he would come to my grandpa every month for like a $5,000 like advancement. My grandpa would say, sure, I'll give you the money, but you got to extend my uh, lease another five years. So he did that. So at the very end, when he purchased it, he had a, he basically didn't owe the guy any money and he bought it. I think he like settled for 16 grand, sold it to um, Harrah's in 2005 for 55 million. So um, now, yeah, Harrah's still owns and operates it uh, uh, under our name and family wow. name and stuff. It feels, yeah. I haven't been in there in a long time, but it feels so classic in there. You actually, you feel like oh, yeah. you're back in like the 1960s. Dude, how many mob hits were coordinated in, <laughs> in those four walls? <laughs> no, I know. So my grandfather, we're Northern Italian. We're a little town called Bergamo Almeno San Salvatore. It's about 20 miles or 20 kilometers north of uh, uh, Milan. And so uh, Southern Italians are known for, you know, the mob and whatnot. So my grandfather, uh, revered himself as kind of a businessman. He was above that type of activity. So the mob um, actually came to him several times and were tried to like strong arm him for 10% of his business. And my grandfather said, no, I'm here as um, an authentic Italian. I'm raising my family. I'm putting food on the table for my kids. Like get the hell out of here. And because he stood his ground, the mob like respected him from there on out. Wow! But it was ironic that you say that because Bugsy Siegel had an escape route that came um, out or down to the basement of the Flingo Hotel. And then it went over to my grandfather's restaurant and the door opened up into my grandfather's restaurant where he would then catch a, a vehicle that would be sitting there waiting for him 24 seven. It was a hired vehicle, never like moved. The guy basically worked and just sat in his car and waiting for the day that when Bugsy Siegel was going to come out and if the feds came in to shut the operation down. So it happened one time in the several decades. And I, I remember my grandfather saying he was, he was working out the books, you know, everything back then was all paper and you did everything by hand. And so he was, um, he had like a little calculator with a piece of paper on it. And, um, he said, Batista, I was, I got scared so bad. He goes, all of a sudden I hear banging on the door of the, you know, the escape route door. And he's like, I didn't know what to do (laughs) to open it up. And Bugsy's like, move, move, move. They're here. They're here. And literally within hours, they shut the flamingo down for embezzlement. Yeah. (laughs) That is crazy. Okay. So here, here's all the questions I was going to ask you. I'm ripping that up. We're going to just talk about your grandpa. That's an amazing (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Well, what a remarkable, what a remarkable, um, life to have come from yeah i mean seriously i mean just amazing i grew up um you know 
basically being the busboy, eventually server to Led Zeppelin, um, Prince, um, Dan uh, or Dan Halen, um, uh, George Bush, um, uh, Meg Ryan, Ryan O'Neill, uh, like the list goes on, on and on and on. Madonna came through, um, Oscar De La Hoya, you know, just. Uh, George, uh, Bill Clinton, um, like it just goes on and on. Of course, all the funny acts, you know, like just Sammy Davis Jr. and um, parts of the Rat Pack, and just yeah, wow, that was just that was Clint Eastwood uh, was my godfather grow, uh, as a child. Like he no longer is, we're at, out of contact. But there's many pictures of my mom pregnant with Clint Eastwood kissing her stomach. Wow, and when he was the mayor of Carmel. Yeah. So yeah, just growing up in that Bill, Bill Cosby taught my dad how to play tennis, you know, before he became all weird and was arrested, you know, back in the seventies when he was, you know, the, just, it was, it was crazy. There's so many pictures of Bill Cosby in the picture, in the, in the kitchen with my grandmother making sauces and just, yeah. Um, uh, what was the one that passed away? Natalie Wood was my, my father's godmother and uh, Robert Wagner. So yeah, just that was my childhood. Every weekend was an, an event. <laughs> That's incredible. So how did everything get so turned around for you? Like it sounds like you had a pretty amazing childhood. How how did you end up experiencing so much trouble? Right. So you, yeah, you would ask yourself that. Well, unfortunately, so my dad um, rebelled against my grandfather and became a punk rocker, and he got really deep into the punk rock scene. And it was like during the time where punk rock was really you know, anarchy. And it's like, you know, fight the system. And we got, you know, we got the thumb of the man on us. And, and it was all about um, just like kind of revolting and really like um, sticking a middle finger to, to government and society. And, and so my dad really found his niche in there. Of course, he grew up on David Bowie and, um, you know, those things were his favorite. He, Elton John, he was like really into that as a child, but then it, you know, in his teens, he was 15 years old when he had me 15 and a half. When my mom gave birth, my wow. uh, mother was 18. Yeah. My dad at 15 and a half had, um, two vehicles. He owned a condominium, uh, because my grandfather put all this money, right. That they were making and bought properties in my dad's name. So dad's name. So yeah, my dad was an adult at the age of nine. He was waiting tables. He couldn't even see over the table. He was leaving school in a taxi cab to go to work. He was working till midnight the next day, going to school. So he didn't really care about school that much. My grandfather would have been okay with him dropping out of school and just working um, because that was the way he was raised. Um, although it was abusive in a lot of ways, you know, unfortunately, my, my grandfather, you know, uh, was very verbal, abusive, eventually became physically abusive. And, um, my dad just like shuddered. And, and so anyways, and my mom's um, parents, uh, both divorced their, um, significant others and ran, or they, they met each other in Rochester, New York. My grandmother was a, um, a hand model for Avon cosmetic. And my grandfather was a bartender the next day or that night they made love. The next day they got on an airplane, went to Las Vegas, got divorced from their significant others and had a baby, which was my mom. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and that's back when Vegas would divorce you and marry you in one day. It was like basically on all the billboards. It was their, 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 you know, marketing scheme was like, you know, really what happens here stays here. So come here and be naughty and uh, get away with it. So anyways, um, 
Yeah. So, wow. I mean, they weren't really given the the model on how to be um, good parents. And unfortunately, it was during a time where cocaine was really rampant. And my dad, being in punk rock, started getting further into like testing stuff out, Angel Dust. And I have pictures of me and him and him playing guitar. And I, I remember as a kid looking up to him and just loving the the ground that that he walked on and he was a musician he was really talented but he was unable he was like my brother you know because of the difference in age like I didn't respect him like a father and my mother was like my sister and and today they've actually become almost like my children like I am the responsible one and they're the ones that don't know how to spell or how to get online and like or how to take care you know so the roles have reversed and, and I'm okay with that. You know, luckily I'm, um, I'm a survivor and I've, I've been able to get through a lot. So we're the, I think we're the, where the rails kind of went weird was that about first, second, third grade, parents were starting to experience big troubles with each other. Uh, dad was staying together with mom because Reagan was possibly going to be doing, um, um, a military, um, like a draft. Yeah. They, yeah. So Reagan was planning a draft. So my dad was staying with my mother in order to avoid something. I don't know. It was something strange like that. I just remember there being talks of that. And gosh, I just remember the time Phil Collins and just the music my dad was playing. And so they were divorcing. And um, during this time, there was tons of drug use, you know, and my dad was having these huge parties to be socially acceptable and or accepted. And, um, so I was like the kid at the punk rock party with like 300 people in kegers and people smoking weed. And just, I am walking around and all the women, thank God were like endearing and just trying, you know, they have that maternal thing and they're like, what are you doing here? Come over here. Like, you know, drunk. And they're like, we love you, Batista. We're going to protect you. I'm like, okay, good. Cause nobody else is. <laughs> and I'm like mobbing around and, and I, and I'm being completely honest with you, Casey, I, I, I had no inkling as to want to try any of that stuff. In fact, I was rebelling just like my dad rebelled. I was not in, I was not interested. You guys were, you know, this is during the Nancy Reagan campaign, just say no to drugs. So, you know, they were educating us in school and I was like wearing my little pin because I was a certified member. So I was not into drugs and I was not into I, all that misbehaving was not something I was interested in. In fact, it was like weird. I was, started to get into classical music and musicals, you know, being um, like unbeknownst to me, I was gay, but you know, I, I hadn't come out yet. So, but I was really attracted to the stage and the glitz and the glamor and um, the showmanship. And so um, anyway, so yeah, I, geez, I think I was just alone a lot by myself, putting myself to bed. I was abandoned. I was neglected. And so this internal self started developing that I was not enough. And in that, um, I was not lovable and I was not worthy. And so that started to be my true identification because I felt without a sibling to talk to about how crazy stuff was going on in our lives, like I just had my own head. And in my own headspace, it was either, you know, is this reality? Because I was going to school and everyone in school was having normal lives. Like parents were giving their kids after school snacks. And I and we didn't have anything but condiments in our fridge. So I was just I was I felt really different. And then um, 
you know, of course, I was also internally struggling with my identity. So uh, this goes on to many countless nights of uh, now drug use turns into mental health conditions for my mother and she's bipolar. She's my dad's divorcing her like windows are getting busted out. Curtains are being torn down. Uh, brand new carpets being squirted on with mustard, you know, F you. And just, I'm like, my mom goes into the bedroom for two weeks. Like neighbors are coming over, making sure that I have food. If I'm okay, like, you know, it's 110 degrees in Vegas and we don't, the windows are blown out. So it was just insanity. And that was a normal, yeah, that was normal though. For me, my mom found out my dad was cheating. She takes a bird bath and, and throws it through the window. Like, um, my dad getting out and my mom throwing the the wedding ring across the freeway. My dad gets out and pulls the windshield wipers off the car (laughs) and like, just, yeah, that was so normal for me. And, um, I would go to school and I would develop a different personality. And once I got to school, I was the best. I was the best student. I was the, I was, uh, you know, um, I eventually got into student body. I got into student government. I started traveling with, you know, the science club and I got really good at science and math. And so um, I was in all the musicals. I was, you know, the tenor lead in choir. We did magicals. You know, we, we toured, you know, parts of the country with our choir and we had these huge performances and blah, blah, blah. So like at, at school, I had this whole different mask and I was excelling and reaching great heights. And, uh, but in, at home and continuing at home up until 18 years old, um, you know, at 18 senior year, my stepdad's got five pounds of meth in the freezer. I have no idea what it is at this point. I had just came into smoking weed and, uh, so, uh, yeah. And then finally we go to reality bites, this movie that was but from MTV and Winona Ryder was in it. And I remember, um, being in the parking lot, my friends pull out some foil and they're smoking this substance off the foil. And I was like this kid that just said, what are you doing? And they're like, just shut up. Batista. We're not doing anything. You're not doing it. And I was, they were my best friends. And, uh, so finally I pushed and pushed and pushed and they ended up, um, letting me share and it was crystal methamphetamines. And so within, um, um, are you there? Yeah, of course. Are you kidding yeah. me? Okay. I would, I would only okay. leave to go yeah. pop popcorn at this point. This is so <laughs> insane. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. Cause, um, yeah. So, um, anyways, um, I'm smoking the methamphetamine and I felt like I had arrived. And I'm telling you, the reason I felt like I had arrived is the, the really large child at this time, like, you know, young man at this time, no longer felt large and, and gross and size 44 waist and, you know, four X t-shirt and, you know, just stuffing my feelings with food, which was my first real addiction. Um, and nobody caring because my personality overrode the fact that I was that large. Plus I dressed really nice. I wasn't like sloppy in the way that I dressed and, and people, you know, were okay with who they, I was a large person, large personality. And so, 
Um, and then, but all of a sudden that, that methamphetamine took all that away. It took the sorrow, the self-esteem, the, the worthlessness, the, just the unlovableness, like all those, those feelings of not being enough were just washed away. And I felt incredible. And not only did I feel incredible, I felt like I could sing better. Like I literally was convinced my voice, I was hitting octaves I never hit before, you know, like. And, and I'm sure that the meth probably helped with that. I don't know. Don't experiment and try. But <laughs> I'm just saying, um, like, literally a lot of things shifted for me. I, my homework all of a sudden was on point, you know, just because I was hyper, you know, uh, aware and, you know, just what it does to you. And so back then, 18 years old, my God, like, I could do a little bit and I would be up for four days and I still looked golden in the mirror. I, my skin was still taut. I had no dark circles. You know, I was still you know, maybe a little oily shine, but nobody really knew. I was just a little extra hyper and I was already hyper. So that wasn't something new. So anyways, every, um, every now and again, I'll have somebody say like, Oh, people who do drugs, like they, they'll, they'll, they'll almost like judge them. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh yeah. D- oh yeah. drugs are amazing. It's why people get addicted to them. They make you feel amazing. Oh, I'm yeah. not advocating that you yeah. do them, but there is a reason that people use. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. You're not going back after you're lost your entire life and you created all this wreckage and havoc and nobody in your family will talk to you unless it feels good. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? There's, there's, yeah, there's definitely a hook there. And um, yeah, I think it's unfortunate, you know, that's why I like to be the person in our carnivore community speaking on not only emotional well-being and a holistic approach to wellness, but I also like to put it out there um, the, about the, the addiction part of it, you know, because a lot of people get afraid of it. They're scared. And it's something that you would watch on 2020 or 60 minutes or not in my house, not in my backyard, never happened in my family. But, um, you know, I, I hate to break it to most people that like, yeah, if you, if you look for it, it'll probably show up there. You might not know about it, but it's probably, um, a couple of degrees of separation from your life somehow, some way. And I just try to like re I try to remove that, um, stigma and that dark cloak that surrounds it because a lot of people turn a blind eye to it. And I want people to know that, um, like your introduction, people that have been through the pain and suffering that I've been through and that have numbed with chemicals and substances and food that they can come out the other side and be, you know, active members of society and pack into the stream of life. And so the more that people like us advocate for one another, the more it breaks that stigma. And we start to look at um, addiction, especially substance use addiction as something that's serious, you know, and that people, uh, unfortunately, God rest their souls are dying. You know, in our state, it's, it's insane. The opioid, opioid epidemic in the state of Utah is, and it's unfortunate because the church turns a blind eye, the families turn a blind eye, and everyone's in grandma's medicine cabinet pulling their pain pills. And then yeah. when those run out, they're like, where can I get it? Well, let's run to Vegas and go talk to the cartel. And you got these little return missionaries don't even know what the heck they're doing, you know, mixing with like hardened criminals from Mexico. Like, and it just, and they get in, you know, deep and they're 23 years old and boom, they get the, they get the one batch that has fentanyl in it and stops their heart and they're dead and nobody mm-hmm. knows what to do. So I want to like continue to be an advocate for that. So 
Yeah. I, do you want me to pick up where I left off? Yeah, of course. I love that message too, by the way. And I, I you know, you're talking about a few, a possibly a few degrees of separation between maybe somebody who's using like hard drugs or something, but addiction is addiction to anything is rampant. It's everywhere. everywhere. And, and I, yeah. I just, I didn't give enough credit to sugar addiction and food addiction and how ubiquitous, ubiquitous it is. I mean, just this year yes. I learned, I would call myself a sugar addict and I never thought that in the past. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, well, yeah, it's, well, it has that word attached, addict, right? So, you know, and people are like, they think, you know, the show intervention or something, you know, they think, they think something, you know, I'm selling my body, but no, it's when, you know, I have an addiction and I'll, and I will be straight up with it. Like with Instagram, there's times where I check into Instagram a couple times a day and I'm like, I need to be doing other things. <laughs> And then I get in a rabbit hole. And before you know it, I'm watching someone's page about how to make, you know, zero carb bread. (laughs) And I'm like, I need to get off my couch. What am I doing? Okay. Um, And anyways, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. I think um, self-awareness is everything. And um, once you can identify food and sugar addiction, especially in our realm of nutrition and wellness, um, I think it's, it's gigantic. Um, I was just watching a YouTube video recently and they were talking about how, um, you know, like people like say, for instance, say you're a sugar addict or a carb addict or a food addict, you know, like with a, with an alcoholic or a drug addict, you know, there's those food pushers out there. You go to family, they're like, just have one. This is okay. Everything will be good. And this isn't going to harm you. Well, you know, not everyone's like that. Some people, like you would say, you wouldn't give an alcoholic a drink and be like, oh, you have 25 years sober because you wrecked and ruined your life over alcohol. Just have one sip of this, you know, this new beer that's out or whatever. You wouldn't do that. So people, I guess, because it is food and it is sugar, they don't look at it like something that can wreck and ruin someone's life. But when you get upwards in the hundreds of pound weight gain and it takes over your life and you're no longer taking care of yourself because you can't stop eating or you can't stop consuming the dopamine spike known as sugar. Like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's its own issue. It's probably a whole nother podcast. Well, totally. And it's not like at every children's birthday party, every weekend, there's like a bunch of meth that people can do. Like it's it's every, every church group, every meeting, every office building, like you name it, you can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And people aren't addressing that. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, I was at the doctor's office today getting blood pulled and I saw, and, and I wasn't, obviously I've been over 300 pounds, but I'm looking at this, uh, somebody's family photos and it's the entire family. She's got like seven kids and they're all chunky. Like I was, if not even chunkier. And I'm like, dang it. Cause that's a rough start. Once they get to that space, you know, um, that's going to be with them for the rest of their life. And they're going to have to someday address it, you know? Wow. But so I'll pick up where I left off. Yeah. So, um, I get into crystal meth and then I'll kind of run through this little quickly crystal meth then gets me a little crazy. I was working at Motown cafe at the time. It was when all those like, you know, um, themed restaurants were coming out planet Hollywood. And so, um, I get to Motown cafe and I'm doing meth and then eventually I can't pay my rent cause I'm not going to work. And I'm telling everyone at the host station, like, you know, God bless. I was, just, it just got weird. The whole meth thing started getting really weird. Like I was staying up too long. And then, um, they, I had three arrests in one week. I was 
evicted out of my apartment and I broke back in to the apartment after the constable put a lock on it. So I snuck back in and slept in there and the, the handyman found me and uh, had me arrested. I was in a domestic dispute with my stepfather who was beating my mom and he threw a, a, a big bowl of hot spaghetti at her face. And so we started, me and my mom started kicking his butt. The cops were called. They took both of us to jail. That was like uh. during the, the beginning of the OJ thing. So where they took both parties involved. And then uh, the third one was I was now homeless and I went to Dillard's and I stole underwear from Dillard's because I didn't, hadn't changed my underwear in like a week. And I was like living um, underneath the bleachers uh, at the 50 yard line um, at a football field in downtown Las Vegas off Fremont street. So the three arrests in one week, that was kind of, you think that would have been an eye opener, but no. So now I'm really down and out and I'm really sad. And uh, I'm on Fremont, which is uh, very well known for at that point, not anymore, but back then um, uh, it was known for crack and a lot of like skeezy hotels. Now it's been regentrified and it's all pretty and they put a lot of money in it. But um, back then it was like really dark, like crack addiction down there. And so I asked somebody to get me some methamphetamines and they came back with a crack rock. And so I thought it was meth and I smoked it and boom, oh, I'm now I'm hooked on crack. So the crack thing goes for <laughs> quite some time. And then, um, this gets me to a place where I'm going to the DMV. Me and my grandfather have the same name. So I get a driver's license with his middle initial in it. I go to Bank of America where we both have accounts. No. Um, I memorize the last four of his social. I get an ATM card. Um, I basically am now pulling money out of his account and uh, getting hotel rooms and I could shower. It was like, you know, and I was buying crack. And so this went on for about two weeks. And then at gunpoint, I go back into the uh, Bank of America in Las Vegas and like 25 guys, canine unit. It was like, get on the floor. They got all these rifles. It was like out of a movie. And I'm trying to pull money out of grandpa's account again. And wow. they're like, uh, yeah. So it was scary. All, you know, all the people, the customers are screaming. They're running out of the building and he gets me in the car. And he's like, we've been following you for a while. And, da, da, da. and I'm like, yeah. He's like, so your grandfather's not, not pressing charges, but the state has to pick it up because it's a federal institution of federal bank, blah, blah, blah. And so um, I go and serve two years um, out of a four-year sentence. I get my first parole and um, just insanity. I'm there and I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm getting off drugs. I can't believe I'm in prison. This is my wake up call. Um, I was really, really heavy then. I don't, I'm in the, between the 290 and three something um, like weight range. Um, so get into prison and I just make a decision that I'm going to start doing Atkins and I'm going to be restrictive with what I eat. And so my kind of like quasi eating disorder um begins with, I'm going to only eat the meat that comes on the plate from chow line and none of the sweets, none of the bread, none of the pancakes, none of the biscuits, just the meat, which was really the smallest portion on the thing. So I go from th like around 300 pounds to 167 pounds in probably like four or five months. Wow. Just malnourished, running the track two miles every day. So I'm getting all this cardio in and I'm not feeding my body. The skin's falling off. It looks like, skeletal is coming out. And uh, 
I get out. We didn't have any mirrors in there. There's the only way you could see yourself was uh, in the reflection of a window. So if I if I saw that from time to time, I could tell that I was like you know losing weight. But we had no way to gauge that. People would tell me, "Oh, you look better." So I got out and um, and I did this all in vain of trying to find someone to love or to love me mm-hmm. or to be in a relationship because you know that was the epitome was to fill this this quote unquote you know this gigantic spiritual hole with another human being or like I was for years with addiction. So, um, were you out at so this I point? Out, was I what? Had, had you come out at this point? Yeah. So I came out, um, I actually came out around 15 years old and, um, oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, I eased right into that. I know so many people that have never had the same experience I did. My mom struggled with it. She thought it was her fault. My dad was already like hanging out with all the punk rockers. And the only place that punk rockers could go party was at the gay bars because it was the only place where they were accepted, you know? So my dad was very supportive. My mom, um, she struggled with it, you know, but not bad. Just, um, she just probably, I think, I don't know. She had expectations. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, yeah. So I get out of prison and, um, I get off parole and then I maintain on marijuana and alcohol for the next 10 years. I travel to Thailand. I do all these great things. And, uh, um, I live at my father's house and renting a room out of his house. I'm close to family. And then I get into a relationship and get back on meth because the person that I was in the relationship was into it. And so slowly, but surely, um, I start to lose my life again. And then from meth, I get back on the crack. So this then gets me to a space where I'm like, I got to get out of Vegas. And so I moved to Southern Utah. My grandparents had sold the restaurant and my grandfather was like slowly purchasing up Parowan, Utah. He was like buying the airport and all these, you know, he was trying to like fit in. And so my dad was like, yeah, just come out here. Grandpa will, you know, take care of you and like, we'll be okay. And da, da, da. so I move out to Parowan, Utah, which is like, I'm going from 3 million people in Las Vegas to Podunk, Parowan, which Bustling. is like 2,000 people. Bustling metropolis. And, I've been through there several times. Oh my God. And uh, yeah. And I'm like this little gay kid, like totally like crack addicted <laughs> coming out to Parowan. And I'm like, you know, got fingernail polish on, like platinum blonde hair, like oh. stick out like a sore thumb, like you all these cowboys. Not, you do yeah. not do that. Wow. Yeah. It was different. So, but you know, but I was also Batista's grandson who, like I said, was buying up real estate in Parowan like crazy. So uh, whatever, whatever that held, there was some type of feeling as they, they were going to turn a blind eye to it. But mm. yeah, there was also stares and looks. And so I couldn't find... For the for the life of me, I couldn't find crack cocaine in Peril in Utah. <laughs> so I had to, you know, I wasn't gonna go approach children at school. So I had to then turn to the local liquor store. And that's where um my alcoholism began. And it went from drinking wine. My family's big wine drinkers. Um, they're connoisseurs of really good wine and they break bread. They make pasta. They have homemade, you know, bread. They have the wine. It's all part of the the communication in an Italian family. Well, I was doing that upstairs and downstairs in my dad's basement where I was living was bottles of vodka and Gatorade. And I was just back and forth. I was working up in Brian head, the ski resort. And so 
anyways, got a DUI and, um, my, got my dad's car impounded and like my dad took his credit card, got me out of jail and gave me his credit card to go get his, and he comes back home. He's like, do you have a problem? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And he's like, so it's not the crack you've been drinking, huh? So he goes downstairs, lifts up my bed and there's like 16 empty bottles of vodka. And he's like, Batista, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, we like to drink as a family, but this is your secret drinking. And I'm like, yeah, I sure am. So then the next day, you know, we're cracking open a bottle of wine. Nothing's changed. They're not going to, you know, nothing was really noted on it other than, you know, don't do that again. Shame on you. And my PO um, from my, my transfer from Vegas to Utah, my probation officer shows up and, and is like, Hey, what's going on? And we want to breathalyze you. And he sees bottles of liquor. He goes, you know, that there's a clause in here in your, in your probation, you're not supposed to be doing this. And so he, then, um, he, he, I'm like over the legal limit. He pulls me to the side. My dad's outside crying. He's intoxicated. Please don't arrest my son. He's a good boy, blah, blah, blah. And so my, the PO is like, gosh, your dad's blitz, huh? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm like, dad, get inside. You're making this worse. And so anyways, the PO goes, look, Batista, I can tell in your eyes that you're a good soul. And he goes, you need help. He goes, and I'm going to be the one to guide you to that help. You have five days to get into a residential treatment center. Otherwise, I'm coming back to arrest you on this breathalyzer, like this, this limit that you just blew on probation. He's like, so I'm giving you five days, keep in communication with me. And so five days later, I was in the Horizon House, uh, Southwest Behavioral, and um, I did 90 days there. I stayed two and a half years clean. Um I got into a relationship with a professor at Southern Utah University, thought I had, you know, found the white picket fence. Um, I then get into an ATV accident. The driver drives into a tree at 35 miles an hour. I'm the passenger. Wow. I go through the windshield. I grab the roll bar. My radius snaps and my ulna goes through my uh, wrist section about three and a half inches. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my bones sticking out of my body. And so, and I'm two and a half years clean. And uh, they get me in the ambulance and I'm like, ah, and so they're like, we're going to pump you full of morphine. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no problem. I'm like, you know, like, so, you know, I'm like, this is an accident. So, you know, this is a freebie. I get to, you know, get a free high off this one. So anyways, they pump me full of morphine. Um, they get me to the to the hospital. They have a saw there. Dr. Delcor has an actual saw because they were going to move to amputate my hand. Um, oh. and so literally because I had pushed the bone back into my skin, um, I had saved my own, uh, hand and anyway, so now I'm on pain meds. They have me on pain management. I mean, ridiculous amounts. They were prescribing me 180 Percocet, 180 Lortab, uh, 90 Somas, 90 Xanax, 90 Klonopin. And I was eating those like as a cocktail, one of each. I was like, do, 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 do. And I was feeling good. I mean, I was, I was going to classes. I was contributing in classes. I mean, everyone thought it was like, I don't know. I thought everyone thought it was, I, mean, I was probably a sloppy pillhead, but um. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, so found out that the partner is cheating on me. He introduced me to the person that he was cheating on me with at several functions. It, uh, anyways, I find this stuff out. My internal self breaks again. So I, I so now I, I now I want meth, and so I go back to meth because I'm like, screw this. What am I doing all this for? You know, if it's not even panning out, and uh, this happens again. 
I go back to rehab um, the second time and I do it for all the wrong reasons to get the relationship back, to get back into the house that we own together and uh, get out. That doesn't work well. And so I go back out. This time I'm doing heroin. This time I'm doing needles. This time I'm consorting with the cartel in Vegas. And it's sketchy. Like we're throwing wads, like thousands of dollars, like rubber band out of your window into somebody's car that took like four different stops, like to make sure we weren't being tracked. They'd say, go to Home Depot, go to this place, go to this place. Finally, on the fourth step, they'd roll down the window. You throw the money in. They throw the drugs into your window. They speed off. And you you cross your fingers that it's real and it's not like (laughs) baked coffee grounds or something. And so now I'm uh, hooked on um, heroin and um, that was my new existence. And I started selling it. Now task force is tracking me task force at this time. The the funny part is that that the head of task force is a kid that I went through um, my undergrad with. And I did a lot of the, the foundational classes with him, like nutrition and math and English. So he remembered me from classes and he comes to me and he goes, Batista, we cannot get a wire buy on you because nobody, everyone's scared of bring, doing a wire buy on you. But the, he says, I, do you remember me? And he's like, I, I know you, you're, you're an A plus student. You're on the top 10% of like, you're on the president's like, you're, you are, you are an amazing person. You have radio shows and you do all of these things. What are you doing on this street selling heroin? Like probably you could be killing people. Like, what are you doing? And I sat there and I started crying and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, I want to get you help. He goes, I remember you in class you wouldn't shut up. You were the one that asked all the questions that all the kids were scared to ask that we needed to know for the test. And he's like, you're a badass. He's like, I, you, what can we do to help you? He's like, I, first I got to get you off the street. Cause that's my job, you know, my criminal justice job. But, but secondly, like, I want to help you get better. And I'm like, please help me. I go, I have gotten into something I can't get out of. I go, if I get to a space with the heroin, when I don't have it, I get sick, like deathly sick, like influenza sick times five. And I'm shaking and I'm sweating and I'm clammy and I'm pooping myself and show on the sofa. Then he says, okay, we're going to get you help. So he brings me in to the, the jail. He lets me smoke like my last cigarettes, by the way, he lets me smoke like half a pack really nice. Most cops, never, they don't, they treat you like dog crap, mm. but he's like, smoke it up. He's like, I know you won't be smoking for a while. Cause you're going to be in here a while. Cause we caught a lot of stuff on you. <laughs> so he uh, gets me in there and I withdraw on suicide watch in bookings for three days. Um, oh. basically doing all that disgusting, gross stuff, just trying to like get it out of my system. And, uh, to make a long story short, I go into rehab, For the last time. And there's a therapist there that has 11 years clean and sober. And she helps guide me back to school and finish my bachelor's. And then she does the application for U of U. And she does the application for Arizona State. And she sits with me and she walks me through and she gets me the letters from the judge and the different people that I need letters for, you know, saying that I'm a good person in society would be a great social worker, even though I have a jaded past and background. And so, um, I uh, get through this and, you know, I, God, you know, I get out and uh, I just, I was in the homeless shelter for about three, four months. And uh, 
I got finally my own apartment. I walked every day back and forth to my job in a call center in the snow. And I stacked those paychecks and I got that, you know, security deposit and I got my own keys to my own apartment. And um, eventually I got a little beater Jetta and I had a breathalyzer in it for three years. I had to breathe into this thing because the, the, they wouldn't give me my driver's license without wow. it. And uh, I finally graduated drug court. I became a peer-to-peer support specialist like as a bridge between the addict or the alcoholic and the whatever therapeutic services that they're attached to. And so I did all this training. I finished my undergrad. I graduated with my undergrad and, and in communications and, and then I uh, got into grad school. And, and then on the day that I graduated drug court, um, it was this huge event. They make you cake. They have a plaque. People are crying. Your family shows up. It's like this big thing. It took me two years to get there. And so I'm graduating and I'm walking out and I get a phone call from this gentleman named Mike Keenan and I'll never forget it. And he said, Batista, I've heard so much about you. I need you to be on my team and I need you to be sold into the idea of what we're doing with sober living is different than what they're doing in residential. And I said, okay, I go, just sign me up. Let's do it. And I moved into the first sober, sober living house in Cedar city. And, uh, that um, was my little baby. And I had 14. Then eventually we had 16 guys in here and we had them coming and going, sometimes relapsing, teaching them life skills, like how to pay bills and how to be accountable and how to do chores and how to buy and cook groceries. And the little things that people just forget when they get hardcore into drug use and they don't pay attention. You know, they just, they've been so used to going to the Maverick and picking up a hot dog and a Snickers and a Pepsi. Like they don't know what to do with some food stamps. Like they can actually go out and buy chicken breast and do it. So I'm teaching all these guys, these things on how to like live and like, okay, rent's due on the first, you know, you don't want a late fee. So let's get you, you know, part of your paycheck from the previous anyways, we're teaching life skills and, just amazing. And that turns from one house into seven from, and so that just like, just boom, it explodes. He then transfers me into the operations manager's position. Now I'm a case manager. I do all the funding, the housing. I work with the Paiute tribes. Um, I, you know, work with all the shelters. I work with all the residential treatment centers to get clients into our sober living so they can have a safe environment to go to rather than going back to mom and dad's or boyfriend and girlfriends that, you know, are still using. And uh, yeah, we're changing lives over here. I'm telling you what, Casey, it's been, it's been remarkable. Batista, that is incredible. What, <laughs> right? what a journey. That's amazing. I, I, just, I just watched Godfather 2, Ocean's Eleven, and Blow all at once. Like, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Crazy. That's the best. Wow. That's so awesome. So I'm really yeah. curious. I'm curious to hear, how did you first hear about the ketogenic diet, and why did you decide to do it? Okay. So keto, well, so Atkins first, right? Yeah. Atkins was the old, the old school yep. keto. And that was kind and of the, then, uh, that was like the second iteration of Atkins that was like in the nineties where it wasn't like in the seventies, like in the nineties, it was just like chicken breast, at least in, in yes. the seventies, people weren't like afraid of red meat, but by the late nineties, early two thousands, when everybody was losing weight, they lost a bunch of weight, but they were absolutely miserable because they were just consuming like tons of protein. Yeah. 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 Got yeah. It. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, but, but, but I, but I, we all knew as a society then that it, that it worked. 
So, you know, of course, screw who cares about being miserable or, you know, happy. Like if it's going to get me to size 34 pants, like I'm on board, Yeah, you know, I'll be happy in in my next life. Like, let's just, (laughs) let's get those nice jeans on. So, yeah. um, You know, so, so then it was very aesthetic, you know, it was about the, it was about the exterior and, um, and boy, oh boy, has my journey changed. And um, so it started with that. And of course, you know, it gives you self-esteem. You start to see the scale move. You do start to see the pant sizes, shirt sizes change. Um, you do start feeling better about yourself. Of course, you know, I was new in recovery. I didn't know if people were attracted to me. I was like having, you know, sexual encounters. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so big and fat. Like this is, you know, I probably look disgusting and gross. And so, you know, any weight loss was just a boost to the self-esteem and kind of made me feel like I was getting my groove back. And, um, so that worked. And then I, yeah, I did keto and then, um, keto was like, um, so intriguing because it was just taking off and it was, Dr. Berg and Keto Connect. And it was like all these people were just, you know, um, uh, obese to beast. He wasn't doing keto, but he lost a grip of weight. And just all these people on YouTube were just blowing it up. And and I was so excited about it. And, um, you know, what's his name? Savage, um, the guy that does the keto bricks. Oh, yeah. And, um, um, Robert Sykes. Yeah. And so um, we, I was just, I was, in tune with whatever they were doing, I was going to do, I was going to mimic it. I was going to imitate it. And, uh, it was giving me results. And, and then, you know, you start tweaking in, I started tweaking in cheat days. So once a week I would do kind of a carb load and eat whatever I wanted. I started noticing though, that that one day, and then I'd get back on track for the other six days, um, was, I would still lose weight. Okay. Because I probably only gained water weight once I got all that crap out of my system. But I noticed at the end of the night, I felt like I was, uh, withdrawing from drugs, like from all that sugar. Yeah. I could feel the sweats on the back of my neck and like my air conditioner was on. There was no reason for me to be all sweaty in my bed. I was tossing, turning horrible sleep, drinking water. I couldn't pee. Like I was super bloated and I couldn't go to the bathroom, even though I drank like 10 glasses of water. And, um, but you know, like a true addict, why not? If I'm losing weight and still enjoying all that mouth pleasure on that cheat day, why not do it again? Right. Yeah. The total definition of insanity. And so, um, So, yeah, you know, and I did that for a while until that stopped working. And in fact, it started going the opposite direction. And, um, and then also like a cheat day would turn into like a Starbucks and like one meal at like an Italian restaurant. And it would turn into me having to get somewhere at at, like 11 o'clock to the Dairy Queen before they closed because 12 o'clock midnight was coming before, you know, I don't know. I turned back into a keto pumpkin. <laughs> so I had to get like, you know what I mean? I had to get everything in before that midnight bell rang. And it was just, it was insanity and it became a total addiction obsession. You should you have know, chosen really, that as you should have chosen that as your handle, the keto pumpkin. <laughs> the keto pumpkin. <laughs> yeah. Bibbidi bob, bibbidi boo, bibbidi <laughs> So um yeah, so yeah, just anyway, so that kind of does its thing. Um, now, I then got into a, a messed up thing. And I say this because in 2009, I got into it and had great results. I do not recommend this for anybody. So just know that from here, me speaking about it, it's it was uh, not, not really good. And I'm paying the consequences now. But it's called HCG. 
Uh, it was it's been really popular in utah yeah. hcg is um you've heard of it oh yeah tons and tons of people we used to work with it doesn't seem so popular now but if you go back five ten years yeah oh, it's it, huge. it caused massive amounts of damage yeah and lots of like chiropractors were selling it yep. they were like it was like at all these diet clinics yep. and so yeah i did that 500 calories a day i was losing about a pound a pound and a half a day i was emaciated you know and i and so i lost some weight then um, my partner, uh, my boyfriend, Brandon, um, is clean and sober off drugs and alcohol too. But when he got clean and sober, he, they, they have a saying that you put down the spoon that you cook your drugs in and you pick up the fork. Mm. And uh, so you cross addict, right? You, you put down the drugs and the alcohol and then you now have the same feelings and emotions, but you got to cope somehow. So you're either going to pick up a fork and start eating your emotions or you're going to have sex or you're going to gamble or you're going to shop or you're going to start exercising yeah. four times a day at the gym. Like you're going to find a way your, your addiction will, your, the disease of addiction will manifest itself um, and unless you're working on it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And totally. so it'll, it'll pop up in ways that are very, um, okay in society, right. Working out four times a week. That's not frowned upon. Like, yeah. Working out 80 know. hours a week or something like that. Yeah. Workaholic. Yeah. So yeah. Um, anyways, um, I, then, um, Brandon's like, uh, he starts getting big, big and, uh, pictures from vacations are coming back and he, I'm a postaholic. So he, he's starting to see these really not good pictures. And he's like, Batista, he's like, I need, I need your, I need, you need my approval before you post that. I said, you never said I needed approval. He says, well, yeah, these ones, I, I'm going to have to start approving. I go, well, that's half the pictures. He's like, nope, you can't post them. I'm like, then nobody gets to see anything. And he's like, but he's, he's like, I look gigantic. And so I said, I'm starting to hear about this thing called carnivore. Do you want to try it? And he goes, well, okay, I'm down. He goes, what's, what's the, what's, what do we do? He goes, I go, we eat meat because I love meat. I said, I know I do too. And he goes, okay. He goes, I'm on board with this. And so, um, we went to San Francisco in May and we came back. And so we went to Costco and we got, we got jiggy with it. Like we dropped like $700. We just went nuts. We bought all the meats and we <laughs> bought all the, all the eggs. And we made sure that we stayed away from everything, but meat. We didn't buy anything that had the sugar or the seasoning stuff on it. And we did that. And, um, so we just plowed right into it. We just switched right over and boom, he dropped 51 pounds in like five months. Wow. And, um, he's just, and we both feel good. He, he, um, so when I was a child, um, I was hospitalized from all the PTSD from molestation and the trauma and the domestic violence and the verbal abuse and the physical abuse. Um, I was hospitalized for gastritis, hiatal hernia, and I had six uh, bleeding ulcers in my stomach at oh, 18 geez. years old. Whoa. So at, I was, yeah, internalizing all the stress, right? So the doctor back then, and I've been doing this for years, and I probably don't need to do this, but this is just between you, me, and everyone else. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I take psyllium husk, raw psyllium husk every day. And that was part of the protocol back then was like, take a couple scoops of psyllium husk and you scoop it in water, not the Metamucil sugar crap, just the raw stuff from the health food store. And uh, I don't know, it gives me you know, regular, you know, number twos. And then, uh, so, and he doesn't do that. And I don't know, 
I, I probably could stop it and I would be totally fine. I just, maybe it's an addiction I need to address, but um, he gets stopped up though for five, six, seven days. And then boom, he has this gigantic thing that's been his journey on it. And then it turns into um, liquid after that. So he's been me. I'm kind of more fat adapted because I went from keto. I did some metabolic damage with HCG, but my body can kind of be thrown into ketosis pretty quickly. Whereas he's brand new to this. So he's really going through that new, that carnivore newcomer stuff that you hear about. I, I never experienced, I, I don't get keto flu or any of that stuff. Mm. So, wow. Yeah. So I am very curious. I was, I was really surprised by this. Um, when I first started carnivore, it was April of 2019. I wanted to do it for 30 days and just kind of forgot to stop because I, I liked it so much, but, um, I know. Same, same here. Same so, here. Great. <laughs> so great. But the thing that surprised me the most, yes, I lost fat. Yes. I felt good. My, my energy was good. But the thing that surprised me the most was my gratitude, my spirituality, my connectedness, my, I don't know, just yes. love for everything, pets, animals, relationships. It all increased so yes. much. And I, I, I was stunned by that. I was already eating meat-based kind of keto. But when I went yeah. really strict carnivore, yeah. just my brain and, and spirit and heart just blew open. I'm, I'm curious to hear if you had a similar experience. Oh, absolutely. So I came, I came to carnivore for for the weight loss, like I would anything, right? Cause you know, that's something that I have always been running towards is, you know, the quick fix. If you got the quick fix solution, I'm going to get there. And, um, so yeah, um, there's, I, uh, so there's two different people I believe that come to carnival, right? There's one who is been me who's gone back and forth with all these different yo-yo stuff, metabolically probably damaged from HCG, um, repair. I probably have leaky gut. I got to do all this, this healing. And then you have people like Brandon, my partner who has been eating Arby's McDonald's cheese puffs, um, Pepsi Mountain Dew, you know, Dorito bags, all at one thing. And then they come to carnivore and boosh. It's like crazy. So I came to carnivore and I actually went up 13, then 15, then 18 pounds. Mm -hmm. Brandon has steadily gone down. Um, now I'm going down a couple what, you know, five, six months into it. Now I'm starting to go the opposite direction, but, um, yeah, I it's, that was, that was the, the physical part of it. Now the emotional, spiritual, the connectivity to life and to society and just to, to the universe has been exponentially transformative for me in regards to, I deal with 176 addicts in early recovery. Some of the things I hear on a daily basis is not only overwhelming to process and, and I don't know quite where to put it on what shelf in the moment, but I have to take care of it for the safety of the house that I'm representing. And so I have to make executive decisions really quickly and um, hope and pray that I make the right ones. So um, knowing that I'm, I'm kind of have those lives and that, that security and their safetyhood in my hand, I have to be very gentle and I have to navigate through those things gently without, um, you know, without allowing my ego or, or any of that crap to get involved. So 
when I started carnivore, I, I noticed specifically, this is like just a ex- specific experiment. Um, the carnivore, yes, in general, 100% spiritually connected, like, like just connected and loving kind, feeling good about community. But specifically when I was doing raw beef suet and I was eating it by little nuggets, I would have a couple nuggets in the morning on an empty stomach and then I'd have my coffee I do stevia and I do a little bit of a dash of almond milk. Um, And so, or sometimes I do raw milk. And um, so, and I was having these little nuggets of beef suet and it tasted weird at first. Meanwhile, fresh on carnivore, I was doing raw liver. I was doing any experiment at the time that was the new up and coming thing. I was doing it. But the raw beef suet gave me a carnivore zen like I can, I cannot explain. I remember I got a phone call and it was something extremely tragic about somebody overdosing. One of the other residents who was a heroin addict had a Narcan then. So they have to take this huge needle with like the, like they shove it in the person's heart. It's like something out of Pulp Fiction. Like they're like giving the person Narcan. They're bringing the person back to life. They're on the phone. We're calling the ambulance three-way. Like, and I just remember sitting there and I was so calm throughout it. And, And instead of getting hyper reactive, I, I was able to respond you know, correctly, mindfully, I was present. I was present for the moment so that I could be empathetic to the person and I could talk them off the ledge, like of their fear. And, and, and cause you know, they were afraid the cops were coming. They didn't know if they had a warrant out for the rest. So don't worry. You're not going to, we're going to, I got your back here. And we walked through it together. And, um, God, I, I remember later that night, I was like, what is different in my diet right now? Yes, I'm eating prime. I mean, I'm ribeyes. Yes, I'm eating, you know, fillets and I'm eating all of the meats. But one thing that I added that I have this total sense of calmness was this beef suet. And so I don't know if it's particularly that per se, but yeah, in general, yeah, yeah, I feel amazing. That's incredible. That is consistent across the board with almost everybody I talk to. And it's, it, for me, it was very unexpected. Um, but what a wonderful story. <laughs> That all of yeah. it, this whole thing has been so incredible. And now you have this, this drive and passion to share, which you do on Instagram and you chose the handle joyful carnivore. Why did you settle on joyful? Well, I mean, <laughs> we only got one life to live. Right. And so God only knows <laughs> I kind of, you know, I kind of effed up part of it. So I better get on to being optimistic. Most and happy of us, and most of us only have one life to live. You have yeah. already lived 47 lifetimes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, it's really, it really is actually who I am as a person. I, I am genuinely, authentically, sincerely, a very happy, happy, joyful person. And um, I, I don't know if it, if it has something to do with the survival mechanism in my brain to, to be able to uh, escape a lot of the stuff that I endured as a child and stuff that I actually ultimately put myself through. But I have always seen the cup as not only half full, but overflowing. And I, I, my perception, my perspective on life is really filled with gratitude because uh I don't know. So many people in my life have put their hand out and helped me. And I just know that in this, in this life, one thing I, I I noticed that I was blocking my own potential for a long time and I was not allowing myself to, to fail. 
And I finally grasped onto like failure is part of growth and it's part of the process. And the more I failed, the, the more I grew. And I, I was always like sitting around, like waiting for something to happen, happen. I was like wishing that this would happen. I was always wanting for these ducks to be in a row. So everything would have this external, like highlight things would be good on the outside. I realized that happiness is an inside job. And I really had to start working from the inside out. The external was going to take care of itself. It was going to exude the joy, the happiness, the sincerity, the authenticity, the, the being genuine, the coming from that space was going to, going, to, going to be spoken in the way that I speak and the way that I communicate and the way that I post. But I, I realized that I needed to start doing I needed to start creating and I needed to, to start being of service to others. And uh, yeah, that's how I really kind of found that niche. Um, and there's a, a lady, Primal Kumari, who actually gave me the joyful part because before that I was Keto Batista on Instagram. Mm, gotcha. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. so amazing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, geez, you know, like, I just feel there's a lot of ways to make money on this platform. Um, not many. Uh, you have to coach, you got to sell a product, you got to have a cookbook, um, you got to have a program. Um, and so initially, I came thinking that like, you know, I don't know if you've thought the same thing, like, maybe I'll have some passive income by doing this, that and the other. And um, the best I got today is a discount code for some Redmond's Real Salt. <laughs> and, and I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? Um, what I have gotten out of it is so many mothers, so many sisters, so many brothers, so many husbands, um, so many human beings reaching out to me saying, wow, your story has floored me. I am here for it. I love your energy. I love your optimism. I love uh, your you, you as a person, and and uh, I want to you know, and that has just given me wings. You know, it's given me definitely wings, and yeah, it's been it's been so exciting. That's it's amazing. been super exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just I, I I've said this a lot. I just think it's amazing to go through. Um, you know, a, a process, a, you know, a lot of challenges that you have to overcome and, and, and take those things and improve your life and then go right off into the sunset. And I think it's really special when somebody stops and, and discovers something amazing and then decides to share it and shares it around and just takes all the happiness and joy that you mentioned from just helping other people in the way that, you know, the special people in your life came in at, right at the right times and said the, the just right things to help keep you on track. And now it's almost like you get to pay, pay it forward a little bit and do the same yes. and, and help people it's so beautiful i love it it's it's really yeah. amazing wow well it's you know it's cool the people that i'm sure you can relate so many people are there's so many cool people in our little community i mean and there's some amazing hearts and souls and we don't know what they've walked through in a day in their life we don't know what they've struggled with you know it's like taking down these blinders and these stigmas and you know um and just embracing one another it's like we need to come together as a community. And if this is like where it's at for me right now, like I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, a lot of people get caught up in the, this and the, that, and uh, you know, there's been, there was some heaviness in the carnivore community there for a minute. And uh, I'm kind of glad that's lifted and things have gotten a little lighter. And um, I think it's just interesting how, you know, the further you go down this, this way of living, 
the the more you hear about Crohn's disease and colitis and and uh, um, eczema and psoriasis and and people like healing this and you know potentially helping with Alzheimer's and you know do do I miss all those foods? I don't. I really don't. Um, I will be honest with you, and this is something I'm very very transparent about. Um, Every couple of months, um, my partner and I and my best friend will go on a vacation. And I, and if I want to have a salad, I'll have a salad. If I want to have a dessert because it's my my relationship anniversary, I'll have a dessert. Now, do I um, do I plug this for everyone? Do I actually put it on blast on my page? No. Do I talk about it in my lives? Yes, I'm very transparent about my IGTV, um, so people can see that that this is what I do. I don't, I don't, um, I'm not an expert. I'm not trying to give you any advice. It's taken me almost five years to get to the point where I can get back on the wagon the next day. Mm. Um, and the only reason I do that is, um, because, uh, um, because it, I, I, I don't know. I just literally, it's five years later. You know what I mean? I don't get caught up in it. And I, it doesn't turn into a three month thing, one year thing. And then before you know it, a hundred pound thing. Yeah. So, um, but that's not everybody. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and then whenever we're home, which is 99.9% of the time, we're, we're carnivores. So it's been a way of living. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, I think you could probably relate to this. I was like, will I ever eat a berry again? Will I ever have cauliflower rice again? What about a salad? Like, you know, just all those things that um, I thought, gosh, this will be never, ever for me. And so, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be that way, you know? I was reading the thing on the lion diet last night. She's talking about two after two years, healing your gut and stuff, seeing what you can actually reintroduce without it affecting you negatively. So, mm. yeah, I no, don't know. It's a, it's a we'll good see. point, dude. Like I, I couldn't agree more. This has been one of the kindest and gentlest and most helpful like communities I've ever been a part of. And generally right. speaking, you can pretty much reach out to anybody in the community and ask questions and they will be yeah. more than happy to answer questions. There was an, there's an app. I wish uh, there's, there's an app called the carnivore diet app and you download really? it and it's got all this helpful information. It's totally free. And then they have this thing where you can message them. And, and this is two years ago. I haven't, I haven't looked into this. We'll link this in the show notes and, and yeah. you message them. And I'm like, well, what, what things can I message you about? And I get a reply and they're like, oh, just whatever carnivore questions you have, you can just ask them. And I'm like, how are you getting paid right now? Like who developed <laughs> this app and who, how are you taking any revenue? And they're like, well, we yeah. just have some free time and we really like this. And so we're just here to help. And it was some family in, in Canada who made an app just oh, wow. just to message people and answer questions. Like what? That's so cool. That's it's, so cool. It's amazing. And, and you know, I don't, I don't care what people eat and I don't think anybody in our community cares what people eat. It's just unfortunate no. to see the other side of it and people flinging around hate on Twitter, claiming to be animal lovers yet get, sending up death threats and stuff. It's just, it's so yeah. bizarre. We're, I feel yeah. like our community is here. We want to help. If you don't want to do this, don't do it. It, but, but yeah. we're a resource yes. and we can help it's so different. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, Yeah. Oh yeah. It, well, you know, there's ugliness and everything. Right. Yeah. And, um, I was afraid of just, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm reaching over 3000 followers and I'm like, 
oh lord you know and a lot of people started coming over you know like following me from bella's and i'm like well she's a pretty woman okay she's got you know two breasts and i don't have that and i'm gay and i'm also an addict and so i am when is the hate stuff coming <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> i'm like prior to this you know because there's a lot of beautiful women in the in the carnivore community but it's like i'm not that so i'm definitely not you know ribeye ribeye robs you know you know little <laughs> cowboy you know guy down in, in dirt bung texas you know probably thinking you know she's pretty you know and here comes batista like hey <laughs> <laughs> well but, um, i wouldn't expect any hate from this community whatsoever you're doing amazing work you're a beautiful person who has you. gone through this journey and is willing to share with others i i i don't expect any hate whatsoever and if you get some you. screw those guys because yeah. you have i'm gonna, gone through, I'm gonna send you on <laughs> send me on them i will hunt them down i know a guy who yeah. knows some mobsters in vegas <laughs> I can uh, figure him out. Oh man! So I'm going to tweak our final question and ask you what what would you what would be a simple thing that you would say to somebody dealing with addiction? It could be directly in their own life with themselves. It could be a loved one, somebody they know, or maybe somebody they haven't even encountered with. What would you say to that person? Yeah. Um, so definitely, I have a little slogan, I, and it's in the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. What we cannot do alone, we can do together. And so if uh, anyone out there is uh, struggling with addiction in any way, shape, or form, there's so many forms of it, um, just know that you're not alone. Reach out to me. You can DM me at any time on Instagram at Joyful Carnivore. I'd be more than happy to point you in the right direction. I am like a a directory of resources um, when it comes to like, and and I have national resources as well. This doesn't go just for our state, but um, yeah. And just know that like, dang, gosh, dang it. Right. If I can get through it, um, somebody, I want to give the hope that, and that someone else can get through it and that there is brighter days. Um, You know, even if somebody is out there and they're under the influence or they're still in their active addiction, reach out to me. I will talk to you. If you feel alone and you feel desolate and you feel like um, you're at the end or of the road um, and you have hit your rock bottom, reach out to me because uh, I, I also believe that the community um, within our within our you know Narcotics Anonymous specifically, especially if you're struggling with Overeaters Anonymous, if you're struggling with food. Um, there's SA Sex Sex Anonymous. There's Gamblers Anonymous. I mean, the list goes on, and so. Um, these 12-step groups are like my little family of creation. We drink coffee. We talk about what's happening in our day, how we're processing it, how we're feeling, how we're getting through it. And we go back and we achieve milestones together. We make birthday cakes for each other. I've gone on wonderful hikes and vacations with these human beings. I've gone to conventions for for, for these programs, Narcotics Anonymous. I went to Florida and did a, a meeting on the beach with all these addicts and we're like watching the sunrise. And it's just, it's an amazing community it has brought me uh, it's given me the life that I have today because it's the 12 steps has kind of given me a pathway into how to live. And so if you're struggling with any of that stuff, and even if you're one of those uh, knuckleheads that doesn't want to do anything that's, you know, AA or NA related, um, I also have resources for that as well. That's so, incredible. Yeah. 
That's incredible. Yeah. We'll link to all that in the show notes. I, um, you know, at the time of this recording, this, this episode probably isn't going to launch for a few weeks, but I'm going to immediately leave this call, cut that up into a soundbite and, and release it right away so that your resources and, and, um, potential help can get out there as soon as possible, because this is an urgent problem, um, for a lot of people. So yes. really, really yeah. grateful for you for offering that. That's amazing. Man, Thank Batista you. Locatelli, this has been incredible. Uh, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much uh, for everything you that you've awesome. done. <laughs> it's well-earned, man. This is this is really important, great work that you're doing. Tell everybody Thank where you. they can go to find you and find your work. Okay, so you can definitely reach me on Instagram. My, um, my, new, my carnivore handle is uh, joyfulcarnivore. Um, and then you can also find me on my personal page, Batista underscore Locatelli, L-O-C-A-T-E-L-L-I. And if you want to hit me up on Facebook um, and you just message me on Facebook that you heard this, you can also reach me there at Batista Locatelli. Awesome. Again, we will link to all of that in the show notes. Batista Locatelli, thank you so very much. <laughs> what yeah. a what a crazy- Casey, thank you. <laughs> crazy, You're amazing incredible. journey. Oh man, I- <laughs> I, I just sitting here, sitting back and listening to your story is just, it's so, it's so amazing. And it really does provide hope. And I love that you use the term brighter days. That's one of my favorite things to say. And I, I just, I think yeah. you're doing amazing work and it's going to help a lot of people. And I'm so grateful that you'd be willing to share and that you'd be willing to put so much energy into something that almost, you know, ruined your life and you were able to turn it around and now you're sharing your message. Thank you so very much. Yeah. Really, you're really welcome. appreciate you and your work. Yeah, I you know you want to I one of my hand, one of my things I say my my followers I call them the shine squad, and and then I also do a lot of hashtag shine on, because it's it's so important for me to to really for any human being and you don't have to struggle with all that other crap but like one thing that carnivore has and and this way of living has given me is that I get to polish off my internal light and I get to shine and then illuminate for the rest of the world and so if I can somehow be a little morsel of light upon your path to help guide you to a better way. I'm all, I'm all for it. I'm all about it. And I will cheerlead you on till the end of days. That's amazing. Well, thank you so yeah. very much. And thank you so very much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.